If you haven't been with us, um, we're going through a series on our union with Christ in Ephesians. So we'll go ahead and move into that now. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. Each week we've been reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which is where we're at again this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you praise that you are indeed the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the one who grants us the blessings that we enjoy. There are many blessings that we have read just in this passage, our adoption, our redemption, our inheritance. We give you praise for all of these things, and we ask, Father, now that you would uh, bring those blessings upon us even more as we hear from your word and what you um, would say to us through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning we're continuing our journey through Ephesians. Just to set the context, this is a eulogy that Paul has given regarding the blessings that we have in Christ, the grace that we experience in Christ, the blessings of election, the blessings of adoption, which are all motivated by God's love for us in Christ. The love that God has for Christ is a love that he has poured out on us. We have that as evidence in our redemption, a redemption that came to us through the blood of Christ, which is the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which is all according to the grace that God has chosen to give to us. This is what the Father has done for us In Christ, which leads us up to where we begin today in our our passage for this morning, which is verses 8 through 10. We see that those graces, those the riches of his grace, Paul continues, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, it's important for us to see the connection with these verses in verse 7. Redemption is through the blood of Christ. Grace is given. It's received by us through specific means. 
In the context of this letter, this truth leads us to a specific kind of application that we're going to drive toward this morning. And a major danger that this letter as a whole addresses, which is division. So we're called to pursue unity. And this applies most in our relationships, but especially those relationships where the tensions may already exist. And the reason that we need to keep these things in mind, the reason we need to pay attention to this, is that because you are united in Christ Jesus, every other believer that's united to Christ is someone who you are all all united with through his blood. The unity of the church, the unity of God's house, his people, is a reflection of God himself. And his glory and his reputation, the reputation of his name, is at stake. So the big idea for this morning is that all God's purposes are summed up in Christ, or united in Christ, so that we would maintain unity with each other. We maintain unity First, by depending on God's revelation. We see that in how these things are made known to us. We maintain unity by understanding God's purposes in Christ, which we see in verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. And we maintain unity by pursuing God's purposes in Christ together. So first, we maintain unity by depending on revelation. Now, to be clear, I'm not speaking of the notion of modern-day revelation or ongoing revelation, but what is revealed in God's written word in our Bibles. The main idea for verses 8 through 10 flows right out of that theme of redemption in verse 7. If you see at the end of verse 7, we see that our redemption is according to the riches of his grace. It's not on us. It's from him. And we get a small glimpse of last week when we looked at the definition of redemption. The buying back a slave out of captivity. A making free by a payment or a ransom. And what is the the slavery that we've been redeemed from? It's the slavery we have sold ourselves into. A slavery of our rebellion against God. A slavery to sin that leads to death that makes us children of wrath. The payment that was made was Christ himself. When Paul wrote at the end of verse 7 that our redemption is through the blood of Christ... And that this is according to the riches of his grace. Those riches are found in Christ himself. He is our substitute because he paid the penalty for our sin. And this is the grace that was lavished on us. And the next words tell us how that grace is lavished on us. If you have an English Standard Version, which most of us do, there's a comma after us. If you have the NIV or the New American Standard, you'll see a period. And I want to remind you that this whole sentence, the the passage that we read this morning from verses 3 through 14, is one long sentence in Greek. And what the translators have done for us is help us kind of to, to see the flow of thought and how this all fits together. All of this is for the praise of God's electing grace, but we see how that grace works out. The next thought for this main idea is marked by that comma in verse 8. And why am I boring you with this observation about grammar and punctuation? Well, because, frankly, the glory is in the grammar. I want to remind you of what we saw a couple of weeks ago. In verses 4 to 5, we see, In love he predestined us for adoption. The motive of God's work in predestinating was love. 
It was according to the purpose or the good pleasure of his will. This work that is pleasing to God is pleasing to God because he loves you. It's a good work that he's done. So similarly, grammatically, making known at the beginning of verse 5 is prefaced with a manner of in wisdom or insight, wisdom or understanding. The manner of our predestinating adoption was love. And the manner of God making known to us the mystery of his will is according to his own wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding often go hand in hand with revelation for what God's revealed. And that's exactly what we see here. But in looking at other parts of the Bible, we see in Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. His creative acts are acts of wisdom and understanding. His acts in history are works of wisdom and understanding. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. His wisdom and understanding are paired up with what he has revealed, both in creation and his word. His wisdom and understanding are also paired up in his plan of redemption. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 21, Paul asks, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? To make the point that we are dependent on God, to know him and his saving power, Paul continues, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, though it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then in verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, Paul is being a bit sarcastic here by speaking of the folly of what we preach because it ultimately is the greatest wisdom that we could ever hear. Because he also says in verse 25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So we're dependent on God's wisdom and understanding, but we're not left without it. Ephesians 1.17, Paul later prays and shares, or shares his prayer saying this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul affirms that this is what is given to us in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So that what we are being told here in verse 8 of Ephesians is that the riches of God's grace, the riches of Christ, God has caused to abound in us, and he has lavished his grace on us. He has done so in a way that demonstrates his own wisdom, his own understanding, a a way that we would not naturally expect. Yet this wisdom is not kept from us, which leads us to verse 9. We are dependent on God's revelation of himself, but as we see in verse 9, he makes it known to us. Verse 9 begins, making known to us the mystery of his will. Making known or made known, depending on your translation. These two words in English are from one Greek uh, word called a participle, a verb that is like an adjective. And that means that this word is describing how the riches of his grace are lavished on us. You may be wondering, what is a mystery? Typically, when we hear the word mystery, we think of something that we can't figure out. Husbands often apply this to how they understand or don't understand their wives and how they think a mystery that is impossible to comprehend. 
But that's not exactly what the Bible means by mystery. Even though we often think of it as something that we have to work hard to figure out, the mystery in a Bible is something that was once a secret in the sense that only God knew the details, but now has been revealed to us. Every time mystery is used in the Bible, it shows that something that was previously concealed has now been revealed. For example, Jesus used this word when he spoke about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven in his parables. His disciples understood them because Jesus revealed to them what they were about. Paul uses this word several times in his letters, especially in Ephesians, to speak of things that were previously unrevealed, but now are revealed in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that all things are revealed. There are still many things that we don't get privy to on the back door workings of things, such as how God's sovereignty and our responsibility work together. But what we do know is that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. Why? So that we may do all the words of this law. And this is important to keep in mind. The things that are revealed are revealed for our understanding, which leads to our growth in obedience, and also our growth in understanding why we worship the God we worship. Now, here are some implications, implications of this. They may not seem obvious, but if you're anything like me, you may need to hear the obvious from time to time. One, you will not experience the riches of God's grace apart from the revelation of himself. We need to really keep this in mind. But let me qualify that. The riches of God's grace in this passage is the founding principle of the redemption that we have in Jesus' blood. You see the string of thought here in verse 7. The rest of the scriptures make it clear that God is revealing himself, or when God reveals himself, is when and where the people of God experience his grace. Visible and audible appearances were rare and infrequent, which is why God's spirit moved his prophets to record the revelation that God gives of himself, both in his words and in his actions. Paul himself, who was an enemy of Christ, did not experience grace even though he had experienced much of God's revelation until Jesus appeared to him, which was not a usual event, not something we would expect today. But through that revelation, he was reborn to be a follower and an apostle of Jesus. We see in the scriptures that salvation comes through the gospel, the revealed written message of God's salvation. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the written revelation of the gospel, is the power of of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 10.14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Salvation, our growth in grace, is dependent on God's revelation. The warnings about not hearing God's word show just how important it is to hear and to listen. The prophets of Israel warned about the danger of ignoring or rejecting God's word. Jeremiah 13.10 says this, This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. The loincloth is something that Jeremiah had to bury in mud, and when he retrieved it, it was completely ruined. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12 says, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, 
Great anger came from the Lord of hosts. God's people knew what they needed, but they rejected it. And us, we sitting here, we know what we need. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the reason why we encourage you to memorize scripture. Solomon exhorts his son in Proverbs 4, 4. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Our growth in Christ is tied to our exposure to and our saturation in God's word. It's a gift of his revelation of himself to us. And Jesus tells the parable of the seed thrown on the different soils in Matthew 13 and Luke chapter 8. And the good soil, Jesus says, are those who hear and receive the word, holding it fast in their heart. And later on in Ephesians 4, 20 to 21, after commanding the people to not live like unbelieving Gentiles, he gives the reason why they should not, saying, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This learning and hearing and understanding the truth which is in Jesus is nothing short of the revelation and teaching from that revelation, which is God's word for us in the Bible. We're dependent on it. The second implication is that we need to help one another in growing in our understanding of God's word. Paul uses the words we and us repeatedly as he speaks of these blessings that we have in Christ. No Christian is an island. None of us has all the understanding. God's gifts to the church include many parts. We're members of one another through our union with Christ. And our union with Christ is a communal union. This is why we gather. This is why God gives us pastors and teachers as we sit under the preached word. And this is why we gather with other believers at various times in the week to help each other understand God's word, to talk about God's word, to talk about God's word preached, We help each other be dependent on God's word. So we maintain unity by depending on the revelation that God has given us in his word. Second, we also maintain unity by understanding God's purpose. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, that God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, Here's the reason to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The purpose, the good pleasure, the plan, however your translation reads, however you want to put it, is to unite all things in Christ. The word translated as unite and the ESV is rendered as the summing up in the New American Standard. Paul used this word only one other time in the New Testament in Romans 13, 9. Uh, There he writes, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Summed up is the other way that that word is translated. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, the culmination, the goal, the target of all of God's acts of history, of all of his revelation in the Bible is Jesus Christ himself. And ultimately of him being the head the ruler and Lord of all of creation. Now, the Bible is a big book. It has lots of stories. If you're new to the Bible or if you haven't spent a lot of time reading the Bible or if you haven't been shown some of the interconnectedness of the overarching story, it can be 
not only confusing, but quite a bit overwhelming. When we read our Bibles, it's important to keep in mind that the revelation has always been progressive. And what I mean by that is that previous authors, original authors, didn't have what we have. Moses, for example, just had what he was given by God himself. Joshua only had Moses. Isaiah only had what was before him and so on. Over the course of history, in redemptive history, God progressively revealed more of his plan. They may have understood that there was more to come, but they didn't understand what that more was exactly. This is again what Paul is referring to when he talks about the term mystery. And the Apostle Peter points this out, how they knew that there was something more in verses verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 1. He writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter points out here that the prophets knew that there was more to know. They searched and inquired carefully, but they didn't have all the revelation. We do. The author of Hebrews tells us that God's culmination of revelation is in Christ himself. Hebrews opens with, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God spoke gradually and progressively. God used Moses, though, to set the stage. And this is very important. God used Moses to set the stage for all following revelation. We get the story of creation, fall, promises, curses, covenants. All of these events become the standard for how later prophets communicated the message and how God, the ultimate author of Scripture, tells his unified story. Where we are in history, we have the whole story. And this enables us to look back and kind of see how those patterns get fleshed out. And just as a side note, this this is not what we all need to have in order to be saved. The good news of the gospel has four basic truths that we need to understand and believe. The first is that God is good, the sovereign creator of the universe. He made everything and he gives you life. The second element that you need to recognize and, and confess is that you are a creature made by God and that you have rebelled against him, deserving his wrath. The third element is that Jesus is the God in the flesh, the incarnate God who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a fully human life, yet without sin, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was buried, and after three days rose from the grave, all as a substitute for your sin. He ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he makes intercession for his people, who will one day return in righteousness. And the fourth element that we all need to face is how we respond to these truths. The facts are laid before you. The time has come where God has called all people to repent and believe in the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life with him. And it's a simple gospel. And if you have not yet entrusted yourself to Jesus as Lord and Savior, the invitation is open today. 
You are called to repent and believe. Romans 10.9 says simply, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our justification, our salvation is by faith in those basic truths. But there is so much more to the story. There's so much more to how God brought about our redemption. And when you see it, you're filled with awe and wonder at the intricate providence of God, his faithfulness, his righteousness. When you begin to see these patterns in scripture, your heart shouts out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because his wisdom is made manifest through his works and his word. Here's a small example of what I mean. I'm going to be moving around a lot in the Bible, so I don't expect you to flip back and forth uh, if you want to just write the references down. But as an example of how all of these events bring us to the culmination, remember this is about the culmination, the summing up, the uniting of all things in Christ. The opening chapters of the Bible show us God's intentions in creation for humanity. After he creates the universe such that the heavens declare his glory, he creates man. One man in particular, a man named Adam. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's relationship to Adam and Adam's relationship to God are put on display as the ideal. Being in the image of God, Adam is God's representative on earth. We see in chapter 2 of Genesis several key roles that Adam is called to fill. Now, the Genesis was written by Moses to the people of Israel. So hearing the words that Moses uses to describe Adam and the commission that Adam is given is something that we have to have that context of Israel as the first receiver of this to keep in mind. So what do we see about Adam when we understand this? What roles does he fill? Well, first, Adam is a prophet. God speaks to Adam. Adam speaks back to God. This one's not so hard to point to miss. Adam is also a priest, and this one might not seem as obvious, but if you're familiar with the Bible, Israel's priests were responsible for offering sacrifices to to offer cleansing, but that's just the smaller part of a job of protecting the purity of the camp and protecting the purity of the people. And the reason I bring that up is because in Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Those are the two key words, work it and keep it. Those are the key duties for Adam. Those same words in Hebrew, work and keep, we find in Numbers 3.8 for the duties of the Levites, which is the priestly tribe of Israel. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So in Hebrew, guard matches up with watch or keep. And work, work in the garden is the same word as minister. There essentially means to serve. Adam is not just a gardener. He's not just supposed to work the ground and keep the weeds out, although he wouldn't have had weeds yet. But he's a protector. Adam is a protector, just like the Levitical priests were commanded to be. All, Adam is also presented as a king. Genesis one twenty eight. God bless them. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, multiply to subdue the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. He's to exercise dominion, a righteous dominion, not just over the garden, but that is supposed to spread over the entire earth. In Genesis 3, of course, if you know the story, everything falls apart. Adam and Eve failed to do what God said. 
They take what's not theirs. They're removed from the land from which they were to have their blessings and their righteous rule. And through Adam's sin, death entered into the world. Sin entered into the world as well as suffering. In the midst of the curse that God pronounces upon the serpent, though we have a promise in Genesis 3.15. God mentions that an offspring or a seed of the woman, which in itself is very interesting because the seed throughout the rest of Scripture is from the man. Anyways, the seed is promised to crush the serpent's head. And with that promise, a hope is given that the destroyer will be destroyed. Over the course of the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we see patterns of people, events, institutions that carry forward these ideas that even started with Adam. And they tell the readers that God is working through history to keep his promise. They're pointing forward to the climax, so to speak. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel are shown to carry forward these roles. The covenants that God makes with these people tell the readers that God is working through history to keep his promise. Noah is blessed after the flood to be fruitful and multiply, just as Adam was. Abraham and his offspring are promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. Abraham is told that the whole earth will be blessed through him and his offspring. Moses tells of a covenant with the priestly line of Phinehas, who protected the purity of the camp with the people in Numbers 25. Moses tells of a prophet who will be raised up like him in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Moses tells of kings when he gives laws concerning kings before Israel ever had a king in Deuteronomy 17. The covenant is advanced to 2 Samuel 7 with God making a promise to David, like another key covenant, that one of his sons will rule forever. The expectations of a seed, of an offspring, who will fulfill all these roles are even advanced in places like Psalm 2 that speaks of a son who is a king who will be enthroned by God, and in this king people will find blessing. Psalm 110 speaks of a king who will rule from God's right hand who is also a priest. All of these promises and expectations are framed by the covenants that God makes. And the new covenant that's described in Jeremiah 31 shows that a final, final promise of an internal renewal and forgiveness of sins. And even though this covenant is made with the house of Israel and Judah, the previous covenant with Abraham reminds us that all the world will find blessing through this seed, of which Israel is a natural part, reminding us that the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head brings this blessing. And this expectation carries through several places as far as the expectation that all the nations will be blessed. And I'll just mention one. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 3, says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why do we need these blessings? That your way may be made known through all the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Coming to the New Testament, we see Jesus is presented as prophet, priest, and king. The expectations that were drawn from Adam, Abraham, David are summed up, united in Christ. The New Testament shows that the events, such as the Exodus, are fulfilled in Christ. How the institutions of the priesthood and even marriage point to what Christ came to do. The roles that Adam had is picked up in later stories, 
And the fulfillment of time and the fullness of time, as Paul wrote in our passage, the Father sent the Son to unite all things in him, to sum up all things in Christ. The fullness of time refers to the time that Jesus came, when the Father sent the Son. The Old Testament writers refer to it as the last day or the latter days, the days of which we are now living. Looking ahead, though, for them to when God would accomplish his plan. In the fullness of time, Jesus came as the last Adam. That's what we want to see. We see these initial events being carried forth and fulfilled in Christ. As the last Adam, he became the obedient son who, instead of bringing death, brings life through his death. His death on the cross was a death blow to sin and its power. The apostles in Acts proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ by reasoning from the scriptures, which for them was the Old Testament. They could see that what God had revealed, not just with the promises and predictions, but also in the patterns, that all of it was pointing to Christ. And this is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians one twenty, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him in Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. These things are recorded for our instruction. And now why is all this important? Why does it matter whether or not we know these things or not, or whether or not we, we pick up on these things or not? And the first answer I want to give to you is because God has revealed it. If we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, then we should seek to understand as much of God's word as we can, including how the story goes together. The second reason is that there are several points in the New Testament that direct us to view all of Scripture as being summed up in Christ. Dan read for us earlier this morning from John chapter 5 that the, the Jews searched the Scriptures, but they didn't come to him. Jesus tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus about all the scriptures that point to himself. Everything is being culminated in Christ. And third, Paul tells us plainly in our verses that we have this morning that the grace of our redemption is lavished on us through God disclosing his purposes in Christ to us. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to master every detail of every story and how it all is related to Christ. But what it does mean is that you recognize in some way that all of the Bible is pointing you to Christ. Like Dan said, it's not just a roadmap for life, it's a roadmap to Christ himself. For our purposes this morning, and what Paul ultimately brings us to in the letter to the Ephesians, is that since Jesus is the purpose, he is also the head of the church. And that we are to be united together in him. Paul later addresses the division that was going on in the Ephesian church between Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. What he is pointing out is that the people of God are no longer defined by their ethnicity. They're no longer defined by their adherence to the law of Moses. No, their definition is by their union with Christ. The church is a community of people who believe in the Son, which is according to God's grace, to the praise of the Father's glory. And this is what we need to understand. Now, I'm not concerned that that understanding about our unity among different classes or whatever uh, is a problem here, but we do live in a fractured world. We live in a world that's full of division. Turn on your TV or your internet for 60 seconds and you'll see how much of that is stirred up. 
the prominent voices in the world fuel that division. And when we get sucked into that, we can lose our focus on God's purposes. We'll also face trials and troubles in our life with confusion, blame shifting, because we don't understand God's purposes. We'll forget that the powers of this world, whether earthly or spiritual forces, though they are working against us, are all under Christ's rule. Christ's rule and the headship, his headship, is the purpose that God has And he fulfills all of what was expected. This is relevant for us because we are in him. This is why Paul shares his prayer in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. He wants God to open their eyes to grant them the wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, to grant them the wisdom and revelation in Christ who is head over all. And we maintain our unity by understanding God's purpose, which is for us to be under Christ, following him in his ways. We maintain unity by understanding God's purpose. We we understand that purpose and maintain our unity by being dependent on God's word. And lastly, we maintain unity by pursuing God's purposes together. We maintain our unity by pursuing God's purposes together. Dan read for us earlier this morning, Jeremiah 32, This passage opens with, I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. It was for their own good and for their children after them. As a church, we are united in Christ. We're united in Christ. We're also united to one another. We're closer than any family would naturally give us. As Americans, we love our independence, we love our liberty. There are many blessings to our independence and liberty, but in many ways we've adopted our liberty and our independence in such a way that elevates our individualism that hinders us from viewing ourselves as interconnected parts of a whole. In fact, there's almost a repulsion to the idea that we're dependent on each other, that our lives are meant to serve one another. And I'm not saying we need to give up our individuality. On the contrary, God created us as individuals. We lived as as distinct creatures in distinct places and distinct times as distinct persons. So when Paul addresses the Corinthians about the members of the body, talking about the eye, speaking to the hand, and so on, he didn't say that all of you need to consider yourselves just part of the body. No, what he was saying is that they need to recognize the parts that they fill. And each part working together is what brings us to build us each other, each other up in love. And I don't want to belabor this too long. I just want to point you to a couple of key passages. Both of them are from later in Ephesians. First in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians. If you want to just read, follow along with me. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might 
reconcile or might, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to one God or to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jew and Gentile, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So in this section, just as a summary, Paul reminds the church that we are all joined together in the Lord, now that we are all brought near by his blood through his redemption. Also in chapter 3, verses 3 through 12, Paul elaborates on the mystery he had just mentioned in our passage this morning. He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here's here's the deal. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We pursue God's purposes because we are making God's wisdom known to the world, and we have to do it together. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul explains that the reason Christ is exalted as head The reason that all things are summed up are united in him is to demonstrate that all of his people, his people that make up the church, as we live in unity, his united people are displaying God's saving wisdom to the world. This is a benefit and a grace that no other group of people can ever hope to enjoy. And the implications of this are, are pretty evident. We all, as collective parts of the body, need to work together to put God's purposes, which is in Christ, on display. We do this when we use our individual gifts to move each other along closer to Christ. We do what Paul calls believers to do in Ephesians 4 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, Why do we need to bear with one another? Well, we can get on each other's nerves. Eager. This is a striving to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We do everything that we need to do to make sure that we are exercising these qualities because God's glory is on display. And since we're we're united in him, 
It's not about our reputation, but we understand that the one whose reputation is the most important is the one that the world sees. Part of what this looks like in pursuing this unity is to put selfish ambition and conceit to death. This means that we need to stop elevating our opinions for whatever we have an opinion for. Opinions are like noses, they say. Everybody's got one. We stop seeking to impress. We stop avoiding others so that we can serve ourselves. In summary, we need to stop making everything about us. Our personal advancement, whether by promoting ourselves or secluding ourselves, will never fulfill the command to grow up every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are here because it's about Christ. All things are summed up in Christ. In the fullness of time, God brought Christ and put him on display for the Father's glory. You who have turned to Christ are in him. You are in union with him, and by virtue of that union, that is a collective union that we have, we are in union with one another in the body, a body that is meant to exalt Christ above all things. And it's through our gathering, our mutual growth, our mutual encouragement, that we come to maturity and put Christ's glory on display to the glory of the Father and to the praise of his grace. So this morning, we've seen that God's Riches of his grace, his redeeming grace, are poured on, out on us through the Son, making known to us the purposes that he has in Christ, which is to unite all things in him. And because of this, we seek to maintain our unity by being dependent on God's revelation. We seek to maintain our unity by understanding God's purposes, which are about him. And we seek to maintain our unity by working together, by putting aside selfish ambition. Let's pray. Father, we indeed are completely dependent upon you. All of us have the capacity and the propensity, the desire to do things our own way, to make things about us rather than about you. But Father, you've revealed to us that the riches of your grace are poured out on us, are lavished on us, by understanding who you are and what you've accomplished for us in Christ. You also call us to live in unity with one another. And division is easy because it separates us from those we disagree with. Father, I pray that you would help us all to strive to be eager to maintain that unity. Not for the sake of unity, but for the sake of your name and for the sake of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.